I'm Al Deschino and welcome to the 16th episode of Of Interest. Today is Sunday, November 29th, 2020, and this week I'm going to talk about relationship simulators, share an interesting article about the Lord's Prayer, an interesting resource about, well, also the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll be continuing our interesting study of John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress by exploring the first chapter entitled The Jail. Hey everyone, just a quick couple announcements up front today. First is that I think I'm going to start releasing these podcasts on the weekend. I'm finding that my little 3D business is starting to pick up and I've actually got a lot of things going on, but I still want to keep doing this. So I'm going to give myself a bit of a flexibility and release it on Saturday or Sunday. Hopefully Sunday mornings, but we'll see how it goes. The second thing is that I'd like you to pray for me to find a good job. I don't mean a a well-paying job or a job that has lots of influence or whatever. I mean meaningful work that uses my gifts and abilities to serve people, bring glory to God. That's a pretty wide net and I'm okay with whatever he brings. Uh, Y'all know me by now. I like teaching and writing and counseling and disciple making and I also like technology and social media and podcasting and music and 3D printing and I, I know I'm a weird mix. I told someone this week that I felt like I'm a sextant in God's toolbox. You know what a sextant is? It's a navigational instrument for ships where they use it to guide the ship using the stars and the horizon. It's a unique, sturdy, kind of complicated, a little bit weird looking, uh, can do some neat stuff type thing, and it only exists to try to point people in the right direction. Kind of like me. So if you don't mind, could you add me to your prayer list and ask God to help me find some meaningful work that uses my abilities? That would be super cool of you. Thanks. Well, today on Al's Half-Baked Ideas that he's been chewing on for a while, I wanted to talk about something I'm going to call relationship simulators. And my theory is basically goes like this. There's a lot of TV programs, YouTube channels, and comedians that aren't popular because their content is exceptional, but that they're exceptionally good at making the audience feel like they have friends. I've actually been thinking about this for a lot for a while in regards to the shows that I've been watching and that have become popular in our culture or have kept their popularity in our culture. Think about it. How many of those popular shows have an ensemble cast of diverse weirdos and outcasts, unique people that would normally never hang out together, or they do the generic trope type people that would also never hang out together and they all have to do something, get some kind of MacGuffin to find or do. But the heart of the story, the heart of the show is essentially creating a group of peers, friends, a team that ends up caring for each other, having inside jokes, crying together, falling in love with one another, having these huge fights and going through terrible situations, but always coming back together in the end. Now, if you Google the most watched TV shows of all time, or even better, the most streamed shows of all time, there are a lot of these. Stranger Things, Walking Dead, The 100, Orange is the New Black, Grey's Anatomy, Fuller House, and of course, The Office, Friends, and Parks and Rec. I think those last three are quintessential examples of what I'm talking about because they're the ones that people keep watching over and over and over and over, and they come out on top of the streaming lists for years. And don't even get me even started on anime because that's like what I'm talking about, but on steroids. When people get stressed out, think about it. 
they get stressed out, they get bored, they get lonely, or even if they want to go to bed uh, and they don't feel well. Uh, millions of people, they, they pop on this binge-watching of a bunch of episodes of these shows. And though many of them have good writing and good acting, I'm convinced that's not the reason people keep going back. I think it's because they make them feel like they're part of a group, that you're accepted, that you get the inside jokes, that they'll never take off on you like they never take off on each other, that they always work it out. And despite their differences, their uniqueness, their quirks, their foibles, they care about each other. And people want that. And so, whether consciously or subconsciously, they make themselves part of that little group. Now, I'd say this is especially true of people who've been rejected, hurt, or struggle with depression, anger, addiction, anxiety, something else like that. Because there's almost always a member of the group that is like them. There's the scaredy cat. The, he's not helpful most of the time, but the rest of the group appreciates them for what they are and sees them as that diamond in the rough. Or there's that one angry, grumpy, standoffish one who pushes everyone away, flies off the handle, but when the camera gets them alone, they hate themselves, they regret their actions, but they can't seem to stop. And yet, the group keeps forgiving them, letting them in, seeing their worth, and there's usually even one member that have a, has a crush on them. There's usually one member of the group with some kind of serious addiction or a sickness or a flaw that's crippling them, destroying their lives, even used by the bad guy to manipulate the rest of the group. But the friends are always there to help, to give a lecture, to hug and cry with, no matter how bad they mess up, no matter how much work they are to be friends with, the group is always willing to do that work. And it's the same with YouTube channels, except, you know, more so because they literally look at the camera right into your eyes and they say they like you, they appreciate you, they, you can talk back to them with comments and be part of their little peer group that revolves around their personality. And of course, there's lots of other ways that media stimulates the things we're supposed to be getting from actual human beings. Porn is maybe the most dangerous of these, but there are others. Video games scratch that itch for meaning and purpose and affirmation and reward. Social media allows us to craft a persona that we wish we had. And having people hit us with hearts and likes gives us self-worth. Now, what's my point here? I guess it's just to be mindful of this and to take some time to consider the shows and the media that you like, that I like, uh, the ones that we gravitate to, the ones that really hit us where we kind of need it. They, they... We feel it when we watch and ask ourselves why. I've been watching a lot of shows lately that has a, a male protagonist that is misunderstood, rejected and lonely, but through pure chance and accident ends up as part of a group that ends up needing him and accepting him, even growing to appreciate and love him. And I know for me that's scratching an itch. But what about you? What do you watch and why? This week's interesting article is entitled, Stop Praying for Stuff and Start Praying for God. And it's from the Gospel Coalition blog. It's written by David Platt. A while back, like a long while back, I was spending Sunday evening prayer services going through the Lord's Prayer, one phrase at a time. The overwhelming, overarching big idea that was behind every single section of the study was that when we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, it's not about us. It's about God. Or more accurately, it's about reorienting our perspectives, our priorities, our worldview, and everything else to a godly one. That's what's supposed to happen when we pray. 
Think of the first line. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. At the very beginning of the prayer, we're reorienting our whole life. We're invited to talk to God as our Father. Loving, close, helpful, sacrificial, providential, kind. The one who knows everything about us. He's patient with his children. But he's the Father in heaven. Holy, separate, above. He is to be hallowed, worshipped as the omnipotent creator and sustainer of the universe. And the whole prayer is like that. A reorientation to who God is, what he is, and who and what we are. That's really what this article is about. There's a great paragraph at the beginning which says this. We've all prayed for important things in the past and found our prayers weren't answered. God didn't do what we thought he should. When we view prayer as nothing more than a request and don't receive what we ask for, we often start to doubt. We wonder why we should even bother praying in the first place. Even though the questions are honest, this kind of thinking misses the whole point of prayer. The point of prayer is not just getting God to do stuff. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 7 to 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. If God already knows what you need before you ask, then what's the point? He already knows, so why are you asking? You might think that God is up in heaven taking notes, as if our prayers are informing him of things he doesn't already know about. No, he already knows what you need, and that's why the primary point of prayer is not actually to get something, but to know someone. That realization will change your prayer life. Unquote. The whole article really chews on Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus teaches people how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read you one more great quote. He says, Please hear this. The most important thing in your life is not your family, your spouse, your kids, your job, your finances, or your health. The most important thing in your life is your personal intimacy with God, because that affects everything else. Unquote. You've probably heard the idiom, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It has to do with having our priorities wrong, doing futile things to, that feel like work, feel like progress, feel like it's helpful, but actually amounts to nothing. And worse, it actually makes things worse because you're not dealing with the actual problem. I, I think a lot of prayers are just rearranging the deck chairs. We talk about our wants, our desires, our illness, our family problems. We repeat the same phrases over and over, sometimes half-heartedly since God hasn't fixed that issue yet and maybe won't. But what if the reason that your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling is because God is far less concerned with what you want than who you are? Or rather, before God deals with all your surface issues, he needs to deal with what's going on in your heart, your mind, and your soul first. In fact, if he were to give you what you desire, you'd end up worse in the end because your soul would still be tattered despite getting what you want. It would be wrong for a doctor to just take your advice and do what you think he should do and leave your actual illness untreated. It'd be wrong for a parent to spoil their child and not build their character. It'd be wrong for someone to call a painter to paint the front of their house while it's burning down. And it'd be wrong for God to answer your superficial prayers if there's a much greater need inside you. So I encourage you to read the rest of the article. I think it's an important one. In 
each of these podcasts, I also want to bring you an interesting resource, something that'll give you the tools and inspiration you need to pursue a deeper, consistent, and more meaningful relationship with God. This week's interesting resource piggybacks on the interesting article, and it's a book called Alone with God by John MacArthur. It's a sentence-by-sentence study of the Lord's Prayer, and it was honestly my primary resource when I was doing those talks at that evening service. The other one that I was going to recommend was called The Lord in His Prayer by N.T. Wright, and it was honestly hard to choose between the two. Uh, They're both really good, and each give different but complementary perspectives on the prayer Jesus taught His disciples. But I kind of leaned towards alone with God because it's just so much more approachable. I have this fancy Bible study program that has a feature where it underlines things that a bunch of other users have highlighted to show, you know, what was really important to others. What's hilarious about MacArthur's Alone with God is that pretty much every word of the book is underlined. I scrolled and scrolled and scrolled, and it wasn't until I got halfway through chapter two that I found a few sentences that weren't underlined, and then it starts right up again for go and goes for a really long time. So suffice to say, a lot of people have found this book very helpful. So what did I highlight? Well, let me read to you. It comes from chapter three, pages 45 to 46. It says, the initial benefit of this prayer is the way it exhibits the believer's relationship with God. Our Father represents the father-child relationship. Hallowed be thy name, the deity worshiper. Thy kingdom come, the sovereign and subject. Thy will be done, the master and servant. Give us this day our daily bread, the benefactor, the beneficiary. Forgive us our debts, the savior, the sinner. And do not lead us into temptation, the guide and the pilgrim. This prayer also defines the attitude and the spirit we ought to have. Our reflects unselfishness. Father reflects family devotion. Hallowed be thy name, reverence. Thy kingdom come, loyalty. Thy will be done, submission. Give us this day our daily bread, dependence. Forgive us our debts, penance. Do not lead us into temptation, humility. Thine is the kingdom, triumph and the glory, exaltation, and forever hope. In similar ways, the prayer can be outlined to emphasize the balance of God's glory and our need. It can also show the threefold purpose of prayer, to hallow God's name, usher in his kingdom, and do his will. And it details our present provision, daily bread, past pardon, forgiveness of sin, and future protection, safety from temptation. What an awesome summary of the Lord's Prayer the incredible complexity and the beauty of it. So I highly recommend this book to you, Alone with God by John MacArthur. The last part of these podcasts is an interesting study on the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I am super excited to be finally starting the story itself. This is my all-time favorite book, and I'm so happy to be studying it with you. Now remember, there's a link to the book for free on my blog if you want to read along. This week, we're looking at the first chapter, entitled The Jail. What an awesome first paragraph, right? I'll read it. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep, and as I slept, I dreamed a dream. 
I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book, and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able longer to contain, he break out with lamentable cries, saying, What shall I do? See, we enter into the story at a moment when the main character has a sudden and stark realization of what's going on around him, inside him, what's going to happen in the future, because he just read the word of God. It's like all at once he sees himself for the first time, his city for the first time, the, the danger everyone is in, and begins to really feel his burden. It's agonizing, it's terrifying all at once. He comes home to his family and they think he's crazy. They think he's gone off the deep end. They begin with compassion for like five minutes, but almost immediately they get annoyed with him. And they figure they're going to snap him out of it by using what you might charitably call tough love. They insult him, they rebuke him, they harass him, and then they leave him alone. This causes him to withdraw even more, which actually worked in his favor because it allowed him time to pray, read more scripture, meditate on it. After many days, we find him again standing outside, crying out, What shall I do to be saved? And he's about to run, with no plan of where to go, just to escape to somewhere else. When out of nowhere, a man named Evangelist shows up, and the man just dumps everything he's thinking, everything he's feeling onto the stranger, the only one so far that has shown any kind of actual concern for him. I love this first chapter because I think it reflects something that a lot of Christians and a lot of churches have forgotten about the Christian faith, especially the beginning of the Christian faith. And that is that one needs to feel the weight of the bad news before they have a desire for the good news. I think a lot of Christians treat Christianity like they would a consumer product, like an ad you see on TV. For them, the best way to win people to Christ is to extol all the benefits of being a Christian. Look at all the nice people at our church. Our band is awesome. Our preacher is super great. He's really interesting. Come to our small group. We're just like a family. Jesus has given me joy, joy, joy down in my heart, and he's answered so many of my prayers, and he'll do that for you too. Why, even when I misplace my keys or I need a place, uh, a parking spot, I just shoot up a prayer to Jesus, and he makes it happen. So do you want to be a Christian too? It's so great. Oh, uh, and you get spiritual gifts, and you get treasures in heaven, and you get eternal life, and, and so much more stuff. Sounds really good, right? And then Satan comes around to that same person and says, Hey, I offer pretty cool stuff too. You can do whatever you want. You can be your own boss. You can have whatever pleasures you can afford. You can do whatever you can get away with. You can be governed by your feelings, blame others for your problems, tell anyone who disagrees with you to get lost. It's actually pretty great on my side. Plus, there's no God telling you what to do, and none of your actions have consequences in the long run, so do whatever you want. See, if your whole evangelistic approach, your whole reason for being a Christian, the baseline for sharing your faith, is just surface-level benefits of cultural Christianity, then you're not going to make any converts. And if you do convince someone to come to church, even get baptized... If they come with the assumption that all they have to do is check a couple God boxes and their life is going to go on cruise control, the moment they hit any kind of difficulty, their faith will shatter like thin glass. They'll feel like they've done something wrong, that they're not doing their religion right, that, and they'll live in constant fear of either not being good enough to deserve all God's blessings or become angry at God because he's not following through on all the promises that you told them. That's why I love this section of the book, this first chapter. 
It emphasizes that in order for a Christian to truly come to Jesus, to be compelled to seek salvation, to want to pick up their cross and follow Jesus, no matter what happens, they need to feel the weight of their sin, the guilt, the shame, and realize they stand condemned by God. They're under his wrath. They're facing eternal damnation, everlasting torment. They need to feel their sin, the disgust of it, the powerlessness against it, the burden it places on them, and the path that leads only to destruction. The main character says, I fear that this burden upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet. Now, Tophet is a place mentioned in Isaiah 30, 33, and it was the place where the people of God, the Judeans, had fallen so far into sin, they were actually burning their children in sacrifice to demons. Then when the good king Josiah came to power and rediscovered God's law, which had been lost for so long, he defiled the altar at Tophet so that it couldn't be used again, and God brought judgment on, on the place and, and the people. He said it would no longer be called Tophet, but the Valley of Slaughter a desolate place where no joy would ever be found. And it became a place known as being like the pit of hell where good kings would burn all the filth and the garbage of the city of Jerusalem. It was a terrible, detestable place. I'm pretty sure it's the place where Jesus referred to it as Gehenna, a place like hell where the worm, the maggots never die, the fire shall never be quenched. See, the main character of our book has fully and completely realized the weight of his sin and the condemnation he's under. And he knows that destruction is coming, but he doesn't know when. He's terrified. He just wants to escape, but he doesn't know where to go, what to do. Then, and only then, he was ready to hear what the evangelist had to say. It's the same with people we share the gospel with. It's only when they fear Tophet that they will be sufficiently prepared to hear the good news of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Only when they wept over their sin, met the one who went through hell so they wouldn't have to, that they will actually appreciate it. That will drive them to worship, dependence, even to be able to forgive others. Only then will they be able to sing amazing grace with its full meaning and actually believe it. Because they were the wretch, the blind, the lost. And they experienced the undeserved grace when Jesus loved them anyway, healed their blindness, showed them the true path. That's the kind of faith that saves and the faith that endures. Okay, so next week we're going to do chapter two, Conviction of the Necessity of Flying, pages five to eight. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you heard something interesting. Remember, you can find all the links to the things I'm talking about, more episodes of Of Interest, and a bunch of other good stuff, like my free books, on the website at artofthechristianninja.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, liking and rating and subscribing really helps me out. So does taking a minute to share it with your friends on social media. And so does sending me your questions, your comments, your ideas for more interesting things I can include in the podcast. If you want to help me keep up what I'm doing here, maybe consider supporting me financially through PayPal. There's a donation button on the website. I can only keep my content flowing with support from listeners like you. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you soon.